The Investigator's Toolbox is here. Are you a licensed investigator, an investigative or security professional? How would you like to gain work-based skills, be more productive, and grow your business? Well, welcome to the investigatorstoolbox.com. Check out this industry-changing website that's pioneering into the future today. You can network with other investigators in our forums. You can take a webinar, check out a blog, or read an article to brush up on your skills. You can visit our vast resource catalog of research websites and bookmark them in your own private library. Everybody's talking about the Investigator's Toolbox. This really is the future of networking, learning, and resource management. Check this out. For a limited time, we're offering a legacy discount for new members. If you sign up early, we'll save you 25%. Take advantage of exclusive discounts from site partners like Crosstracks, Delvepoint, PI Magazine, Hetherington Group, ScopeNow, Paraben, and so many more. Just visit the website investigators-toolbox.com and check out the demo video in the Who We Are section. Can you afford 41 cents a day? If the answer is yes, then don't delay. Join the community. Investigatorstoolbox.com. These discounts won't last. That's www.investigators-toolbox.com. Are you using a case management system? The answer is no. You should really rethink that process. Right. So as you guys know, Crosstracks has been an amazing sponsor of the show. They've just been uh, really supportive. As you guys also know, I didn't used to have a case management system. I was the, the investigator that was fighting them tooth and nail. I finally decided to give it a whirl. What a great decision, right? During the COVID shutdown, I was able to actually roll my whole business into it and get completely up and running. And um, my clients love it. I mean, just today, I got a, a phone call from a client of mine who just couldn't believe how easy it was to access everything and uh, how invoices were there. He actually asked me to go back and upload all my prior cases and put it into Crosstracks. I've been doing business with that firm for, I don't know, about eight years, so uh, it's a lot of cases. Yeah, if you don't use a case management system, you should, right? You should check it out. Give Crosstracks a shot. Contact Brad or one of the teammates over there and uh, they'll get you up and running with a trial and see if it's for you. If you have used Crosstracks and it's been a while and uh, you're not happy with the system that you're in, go check them out. They're doing a lot of really cool new things and uh, see if it's right for you. If you're unhappy with the system that you're in right now, contact them. You know, the ability for them to roll your system into their system is very easy. Again, you guys know they've been sponsoring this program and I can't say uh, enough good things about them, but uh, make your own decision, right? Give it a shot on your own and see if it's right for you. Welcome to PI Perspectives. We're back in New York and Matt welcomes retired NYPD Sergeant John Ferrizo from Ferris Investigations. John specializes in missing persons and cold cases. During his career, He's had the opportunity to assist in missing person cases like Eton Paz and Casey Anthony. John has over 20 years work experience and has a passion and a knack for working on missing persons cases. We're back in the New York state of mind with these two guys. So welcome John Parizo and your host, private investigator Matt Spare. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of PI Perspectives. Well, finally, we are back in New York. we got two people from New York having a conversation. It's about time. So today's guest is somebody who I just hooked up with recently through LinkedIn. It's only been a couple months. I thought he had a really interesting story and, and kind of the investigative work that he does 
uh, I thought was really cool. So uh, I'm going to welcome John Fariso to the program. John, how are you? Hello. Good to see you. Hey, thanks for coming on. Uh, you hail from Queens uh, with your business, correct? Yes, Queens, New York. Queens, New York. Okay. And then, uh, so prior to doing that, you uh, we, we have Ferris Investigations now, but prior to doing Ferris Investigations, your career was with the NYPD, correct? Yes, correct. 20 years NYPD. Okay. So walk me through your career. Like, how did you get into working for the police department and how did you end up where you're at now? Well, interestingly enough, growing up in Queens, New York, it's almost predetermined for many of us to get city jobs. Growing up in the 70s and 80s, there were so many city workers right. in Queens, New York. As early as kindergarten, I remember writing down I wanted to be a police officer. I remember writing it down as, what's your future employment? And I said I would live, I would work, and help people in New York City. Right. So I saved it. still have it to this day. <laughs> but uh, I wrote that down. How's the <laughs> handwriting? My... How's your handwriting? <laughs> well, I was just going to say... I had help with that handwriting. Cause that, <laughs> it was my wording because it's still my wording now, but they guided me along. I think they helped me trace it, but uh, nice. it was definitely my wording. No one, no one worded that for me. That was me. Okay. You sure they didn't like uh, subliminally put it down there? You're going to be a cop, Johnny. <laughs> Just like everyone else in the neighborhood. Well, interestingly enough, if you went back to my kindergarten class, probably a third of us became the boys became cops anyway. Right, right. We were talking about that offline, right? A bunch of guys that you went to school with, you all kind of went through together, right? Sure. Um, you know, as a, as a young kid, you know, I was intrigued by cop shows. And um, I remember watching the Mod Squad with my father. I distinctly remember them running down the alley. And uh, I thought it was great. You know, these cops chasing people down their uh, dark alleys at night. Sure. Bonnie Miller was a big show I liked to watch. I liked the cop humor. It was my first view of the detective squad and what went on. And uh, I really looked at that like, wow, you know, these guys are joking around. But, you know, they're actually still doing work. Right. And um I saw it that way. It's a great show. Anyone who's a younger audience who hasn't watched that show really needs to put it on and uh, go back to it. So a later show I was interested in actually was Hill Street Blues. Yeah. I would say that was the best cop show ever. That was a um, big one. NYPD Blue was, was another good one, too. Like uh, they, The same guy, I think, produced both of those. Sure, it was the same people on that. It was. Um, yeah. I liked the grittiness of it. Hill Street Blues, with the, the they had the credits at the beginning and, and the cop that said, um, hey, let's be careful out there. Right. That really, um, I remember watching that show, you know, late at night on my little television. And like you mentioned earlier, I mean, growing up in Queens, there was uh, six of us on the block and we played sick ball and we used to watch the police cars drive by and I used to see them all the time and they would just drive by, we would take a break in the sick ball game. And I always wondered what those cops were doing in those cars, but I knew they were going somewhere. Right. I was too young to go with them, but four of us out of the six of us became cops wow. out of that group of people playing stickball. So Queens definitely put out, especially my area, Queens put out a lot of police officers. Yeah. You know, and it's, then, um, it's, it's good stuff, man. It's really, uh, it reminds you of like, uh, was it like rounders or, or, um, you know, one of those movies where all the kids in the neighborhood, uh, stick together and where, where they're growing up. It's uh, it's cool stuff. You know, a lot of the movies too, uh, they, you know, I would go to the movies with my father, Serpico was a great movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fort Apache, the Bronx was mm-hmm. probably one of the most realistic cop movies. I believe out there, even though it was very, very busy, that was a very realistic cop movie. The dialogue and Dog Day Afternoon, those were those are just great movies, and uh, it really inspired me at a young age. Sure. But interestingly enough, I had um, I used to watch the news too, and uh, the Son of Sam uh, serial killer was in this part of Queens when I was a little kid, and I would watch it on the news. And you know, my parents would just sit me in front of the television after dinner, and you know, they wouldn't you know say, hey, you know, don't watch that. And I'm you know, I'm watching about a serial killer, right? And uh, I was intrigued that, you know, there was detectives out looking for this guy. Yeah. And I was like, I was only eight years old. 
And I was wondering how they were catching this guy. And I remembered how they caught him. And I remembered the, you know, the summons in the car, the gun in the car. I was intrigued by that. And uh, right. I really remember the Son of Sam case as a young kid and watching it. Interestingly enough, around a strange time, the Eton Pates case was um, on the news. A lot of people, if they don't know the Eton Pates case, he was about my age at the time. He was about seven or eight years old. He simply went to school one day and didn't come home. Sad. Sad case. So he, um, I watched that on the news also. And I had a strange fear of um, being missing at that time. I can't explain it, but it was a strange fear, I guess, because I watched it on the news. And like, again, my parents didn't explain, like, oh, that happened in Manhattan. That's not clean. And if you remember at that time, the news on TV was portraying him as sold into some type of slavery, right. which wasn't true, of course. Right. But um, fear was there. And um, I'll get back to the Tom Page case later. There was, uh, it was something I always remembered and uh, before, way before I was a cop. Right. You know, later on, as I went to college, you know, I um, didn't, uh, I, I was in college. It was interesting. I was learning, but it really wasn't for me. I, I bided my time. I knew I was going to the NYPD, so I knew I wanted to be a detective, all that. So by the time I got to 1993, I was a police officer. My uncle had already retired, and uh, my cousin was a cop at the time. So, I mean, there was some family also. Right. When, um... You know, I got out of the police academy and I went right to working at Queens. And, um, I mean, the first week I was there, I mean, I was thrown, you're thrown right into police work. I mean, had an individual stabbed in the neck, walk up to me on the street. Wow. And, um, <laughs> Here you <yeah>. go, Johnny. <laughs> Welcome to the club. <laughs> yeah. It was wild. And, like, um, one of his friends was holding his neck with the blood was shooting out. I was wow. like, wow. And I was, wow. couldn't believe the ambulance got there so fast. I was like, thank gosh. Wow. And then that same corner while I was working at Queens, you know, I had a gentleman, um, I watched him punch somebody in the face right in front of me, and I walked over to him. He, he ripped his shirt open, threw a garbage pail at me, and was telling me <laughs> to shoot him in front of a crowd of people. <laughs> I was like, my gosh. I'm like, you know, but this was the job that I wanted to do. Uh, my family couldn't believe it. You know, I would tell me stories. My friends, they couldn't believe it. During that time, I would go up to the detective squad with these cases. Well, not really cases yet, but these arrests. And I was intrigued with these detectives. They were solving things, and they had pictures, and... They were really um, investigating work. It was more, these guys did more than just take a report and send a report out. They would actually investigate it. So when I was on patrol quite often, you know, I would, uh, I would think outside the box and think outside the box by like, you know, I would look at, look at the situation and say there's more to this situation. I mean, what, what is really going on here? So quite often, you know, I would, I would speak to homeless people in the parks and stuff and, they would tell me a wealth of information. So I said to myself, if these homeless people know all this information, then they, you know, they need to be spoken to when, when the opportunity was there. And some officers would come up to me and say, well, don't talk to that guy. He's a bum. Right. I would say, you know, he might be homeless, but this guy's got a wealth of information and he's telling me, and you know, he's not anti-police guy. So I thought a little outside the box. I needed to move on from patrol and go into uh, some type of investigative work. So at this time, I didn't, make detectives, so I didn't investigate. I went to become a sergeant, and um, when I was sergeant, I, I went to Midtown, Midtown Manhattan, and uh, was working there, and, you know, you know, 9-11 happened when I was there, and then it's only half a mile from the tower. Yeah, the sure. Clock, actually. Yeah. I heard the first plane hit. I saw the second plane hit. Wow. It's only a half a mile from those towers when um, they collapsed. I guess that's for a different podcast. A yeah, different show, listen, but, everybody's got a story from that day. Uh, especially from New York, you know, it's uh, could probably do about five episodes on that. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it must have been a crazy time to be in in NYPD, definitely. 
Yeah, I wasn't um, in the detective bureau yet. I was still a cop in uniform, and we all did what we were supposed to then. But sure. during that time, you know, when, when the smoke cleared and, you know, the days went by, I started to realize that, yeah, I was a sergeant in the NYPD, but I never became a detective. So it was, you know, interesting that you're a sergeant on patrol, you're a supervisor, but you're not a detective. So um, I did a lot of interviews and tried to go different places, but I didn't have the experience. I didn't have detective experience. I was very knowledgeable on the street, but not detective experience. So Colonel Fav called me. I had to give them my two years. You give how the NYPD does it. If you give internal affairs two years, you can go to any type of um, investigative work you, you pretty much choose. So um went to internal affairs. It was never the type of work I wanted to do, um, but I learned quickly how to do investigations. <laughs> Officers involved, um, there was still was a lot of bad guys involved, so we had to investigate them. And I was amazed at how these guys that soup sergeants who were once detectives, they, they could solve these cases and get to the bottom of the story so quickly. So I met some good people there. I met some good workers, but um, I found work distasteful, I guess you would call it, because um, you are investigating police officers. So whether they're right or wrong, I mean, nobody wants to investigate police. So did my two years there, and then um, I was offered the missing person squad, which is in the detective bureau. Right. So it's called a specialty unit. So I figured um, the way to go. So I went over to the missing person squad, and... uh, I knew when I got there, it would um, it would it would be a lot because they have a lot of cases there. Right. I mean, I think they have a minimum of seven thousand cases a year whenever right. I've got there. That's a lot. It seems like a big number, right? But the seven thousand cases is everything from a runaway out of a group home who just walks out the door and comes back on Monday to just somebody who just goes to the bar or goes to the club and doesn't come home in the morning and never did it ever before in their life. So yeah. there is a um a large group of people in between. But those cases are, you know, what they would do is the detectives, the detectives in the precinct would get the case. And then if the person doesn't return in seven days, we would get it. So we helped them with the preliminary investigation, but I'd say about 90% of the people returned within seven days. Right. It was that 10% that we really had to dig into. And that's when it went to the missing person squad. Sure. We had a lower number than those 7,000 for the year, but we put a lot of work into uh, that so I was a sergeant there, so um, I was finally able, finally, to just think outside the box on uh, these cases, do things a little differently. Sure. But uh, one thing I realized there is my supervisor called me into the office, and uh, he told me, he said, you know, uh, John, we have the Eton Page case here, still an active case. So I-, I was brought back immediately to, like, being nine years old, you know? Sure. And I was like, wow, this guy's got the Eton Page case. And I saw the kid's picture. It was the same picture I had seen growing up. And uh, they had some suspects, and, you know, they had who they were looking at. And, um, you know, I obviously didn't go and tell everybody, you know, that I remember watching on television and everything. But, yeah. you know, I was like, wow, the Eton Page case. And you back, right? Yeah, it brought me back. It was, uh, it was interesting that I was like, wow, they got this case. So the detective who had the case, he wasn't directly assigned to me, but he sat down the aisle for me and uh, we talked often about the case. And He told me all the old interviews and everything. And the FBI would come into the precinct and they would take DNA from, um, I don't know exactly how they were trying to get the DNA, but they were trying to get the kid's DNA from 1979. It's interesting because this is, you know, so many years later, this was going back to about 2010, I believe. And, uh, you know, DNA was not not around, obviously, 1979. While I was there, um, I just went into work one Saturday morning and um, phone rings. So, uh, you know, like any other morning, uh, you know, one of the Texas picks it up and I hear him talking. 
And he's like, yes, yes, yes. And he looks over to me. He goes, this person knows who uh, abducted you from Haiti. And I was sitting there. I couldn't believe it. I was like, really? And then um, that uh, started the investigation right there, that phone call. And it basically was, was someone, a detective, willing to listen to someone. Yeah. And uh, that person called, you know, they seemed sane and they seemed legit. And we had to listen to them. And that's what started the investigation. So to be something as simple as, and, the, you know, the gentleman needed, you know, he wanted to be heard. And he was. And that's what I had um, little involvement with the actual case itself because it went to the detective who, who had it all along and his supervisor. But it was uh, pretty interesting to see all those years later. So that's involved in <laughs> Yeah. Small world, right? Yeah, it's very yeah, yeah very um, cool. Went full circle in a strange way. Yeah, that's very cool. So, hey, listen, we're gonna uh, jump out real quick for a break, and when we come back in, I really want to focus in on the whole missing persons investigation because that's kind of what we're talking about here today, and and the real passion that you have behind it, and some of the ways that you do approach things a little bit differently. I know you covered a couple items, but uh, everybody, sit tight, and we'll be right back. One full data access without a site inspection. IRB Search gives you full social security numbers, dates of birth, up-to-date contact info, and so much more without the inconvenience or cost of an inspection. As an added bonus, you can access IRB data on any device in any location. You'll always have the best data anytime, anywhere. Visit irbsearch.com and use exclusive promo code PIP Podcast 2020 for a free trial and 100 credits. Offer available for new and returning customers. Do you work with an insurance agency that takes the time to give you the personal attention you deserve? Well, contact Michelle Knoll and her team to get the best customer service and attention available. You never need insurance until you really need insurance. Keep yourself and your business protected. Contact Michelle at mnoll at amoscorp.com. Amos Insurance. Did you hear about the latest issue of PI Magazine? Well, check out the cover feature on the Investigator's Toolbox. You don't want to miss this great issue. It's available today. What do you do when you get calls for bug sweeps? Did you know usabugsweeps.com, the number one TSCM provider in the country, pays you a 20% commission? For converted sales leads? Stop turning money away. USABugsweeps.com uses top-rated technology and they cover all of the United States. So save time and make money today. Contact USABugsweeps.com and mention PIP20. So have you signed up for the Investigator's Toolbox yet? I have. What are you waiting for? Don't miss out. The legacy discount is ending very soon and you'll miss an awesome opportunity. Are you serious about growing your business and increasing your knowledge base? Well, register today at investigators-toolbox.com, use code PIP201836, and save an extra 15 bucks. And now back to Matt and his guest, John Fariso. Before we uh, jumped out for a break, uh, you were telling us about the Eton Pates case and uh, your passion here for uh, missing persons work and uh, the work you did with the Missing Persons Squad uh, while you were in NYPD. You walked us on into how you, you got in, into the, the squad there. So how did NYPD approach these types of investigations and what were some of the, the soft skills that you picked up there that you translated into your own business when you went out on your own? 
Well, the NYPD, I mean, it's not, it's not exactly like television. You know, you have to wait 24 hours and this and that. If a person is missing and something's not right, you know, they're going to be considered missing. So not every missing person is like, you know, the high profile cases you would watch in the movies or television. A lot of them is just, you know, they fall into the runaway, you know, the 15 or 16 year old runaway. Um, unfortunately, three quarters of the time, I would say female. And there is the elderly, which have some type of mental issue. So, you know, that that's a different kind of case. Um, there's the one with the spouses. You, you might have a husband or wife who's reporting someone missing. Those cases are rare, but they, those cases really need to be looked at. Right. And unfortunately, you have, you know, people who just don't come home. And then um, it's a, we find out later on it's a suicide. Right. Even though um, it's a suicide, originally it is a missing person case. Right. I guess that's, it starts off that way. And then you got to you gotta look at all the facts and see where it takes you, right? Yeah. What I would say is for any any investigator out there who has any type of missing person case, and I believe this would go in any case, first thing you have to ask is, what, why did this person leave? Why did this person run away? Um, unless it's 100% foul play, which is very rare, there's a reason for them to leave. And whether it's a mental issue, a drug issue, a family issue, there could be abuse at home, there's a reason why they left. And um, if you find out the reason why that person left, you're halfway into this case. Right. Because if um, they tell you, a parent tells you, well, you know, my, my daughter ran away because she's with this older gentleman. Okay, so right away you know that she's probably with this older gentleman. And then you have to, this is where I think a little outside the box is, you have to ask them the direct question. And you could be right, you could be wrong, but you have to say, is it possible there's prostitution involved? Sure. And um, you'd be surprised how many times if you didn't ask that question, they wouldn't tell you. Because who wants to say that their child is involved in this? And quite often, it, it, this is like where television has it correct. You have an older predator who finds this person, buys them clothes, gives them money, says, do you want to be my girlfriend? And uh, they have the girlfriend for a few days, but a few days later, they're a prostitute servicing numerous clients in a hotel. Right. So, you know, you have to ask the direct question, and then you, you have to go to this person's social media, because quite often, they will meet this person online. So... You know, if the parents are telling you the truth, and I say the parents, it's not always the case. The parents it could be roommate or whatever, but or a friend, and I'll get to that. The friend, when you answer the direct question of why they left, and if they're honest with you, then, like I said, you're halfway there. And then you have to make sure they're not lying, because quite often, for whatever reason, they might want to hide something. Um, if a person has a gambling problem, they might want to hide it. If there's a mental illness. If right. there's a mental illness, have they taken their medication? Because if you have a 65-year-old guy who's not taking his medication, he hasn't been home in three days, and he's not in any of the hospitals, you have to start checking the morgues or other areas where he could have ended up. Sure. So really, once you ask that question, you are you are really pretty much on your way with those cases. What starts to happen is they don't usually return right away. So if they don't return right away, you have to, you have to keep on looking for them. And um, one thing I would do is now social media is so prevalent right now. I would um, find out, like, say, Facebook or any search group, if they have 50 to 100 friends, save that information. Um, write their friends down. Write their names down. And you write all these names down to friends. And the reason why you do that is because this person might delete themselves off social media and they may be hard to find. But once sure. you've got the friends, yep. you have a contact with that. And 
our best friends quite often will <laughs> will unfortunately know either where they are or what they're doing. Yep. And so the best friend knows more quite often than the mother. Yep. Yeah, that, that and, um, totally makes sense. Yeah. One thing I used to do is I learned this only in this in person is uh, I would talk to the parents. I said, listen, where is your son? And they would go, I don't know. Just left the house. He leaves every Friday, comes back every Tuesday. I was like, okay, well. So we would say, what's he doing? What's he doing? But then when we look at his social media, we see he's talking about skateboarding. Social media, skateboarding, skateboarding, skateboarding. Talk to some of the friends. Hey, where do you guys skateboard? Friend goes, well, you know, we did a park in Manhattan where we skateboard. So sure enough, you got to look in those parks in Manhattan where they skateboard. Right. And you get that all off the social media. And no one's going to directly tell you that unless you search for it or ask it. And it could be as simple as the skateboarding angle. And then you find a kid skateboarding and you say, Okay, mom, better looking for you. Yeah, come on. Yeah, I think it's a a combination of using those, um, you know, using social media, using technology, but also having those skills of of knowing how to have a conversation with somebody too. I think somebody that excels at this type of work really understands, you know, the people side of it and that connection. And that's something that you had referenced earlier before um, talking about your experience back with NYPD, how you identified that as... um, a skill set and really worked on crafting that uh, because that is a, a a dying art, right? Having that that uh, ability to have um, you know the uh, the comfort level of whoever you're questioning. Uh, there's a certain skill to that, and that's something you either have it or you don't, right? You're 100 percent correct in that. You have to have that skill set of uh, speaking to people. Now, it's more than just speaking to the person. It's um, you have to kind of, I guess, I'm going back to my police work when. You have to be nice to everybody, but you have to ask the direct question. Yeah. And you have to, you know, you speak to them as a parent. Like I would tell people sometimes, I would say, listen, I'm a parent just like you are. Tell me what's going on. I understand. And um, and then usually they'll, they'll they'll tell you. And, you know, sometimes I might break down and tell you and cry, but they'll tell you the story. Like I had a woman once who had a tracker on the daughter's phone. And um, she kept calling me up. She's at this location. She's at that location. And when we go to the location, she wouldn't be there. We'd go to this location. She wouldn't be there. And then we saw a pattern where all these locations were prostitution locations. And I had to tell the mother, I said, look, listen, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm being honest with you. But I think, you know, your daughter's involved in some type of prostitution. Yeah. And um, that case did not, you know, she did not give me the clues to find that child. But... That would be a good example of if you mention that to them, then they would tell you, well, there's this guy, and, you know, we told her to break up with him, we didn't like him, and then you would have this other angle to look at. And what, like what I just said with this guy, what I would often do is if um, this missing person, usually the runaway, doesn't want to speak to me and they delete me off their social media, now I'm going back to police work, NYPD, you know, do we did things a little differently there, but they would delete me. They wouldn't want to speak to us. We were NYPD. So I would have their friends. And um, I know me and you talked about this at the Society of Professional Investigations uh, after dinner one night. We spoke about that when, um, you know, I would go up to the friends and I would say, listen, she's 15 years old. Where is she? I don't know who she is. Well, okay, well, you know, you're in a lot of pictures with her. Just, you're not in any trouble, but she needs to come home. And then I can't tell you how many times that person would return because the friends would put pressure on them. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. This, this John yeah, guy's harassing yeah. me. Will you please go home? <laughs> yeah. That yeah, stuff well, happens. Had, it's real. Yeah. I had an individual, and this was back when I was in internal affairs, where we called his mother in law so many times where he called me directly late at night in the office. <laughs> and I'm not going to do his accent, but it was pretty funny. 
And he used the word bro numerous times. And he said, please stop calling my mother-in-law. I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you. And he, he, was, he did an interview on the phone because we had called his mother-in-law so many times that it was causing problems for him. He was just like, I just got to talk to these cops that'll leave me alone. That's hilarious. That's hilarious. Yeah, you remind me of a case that I, I worked on many years ago. Uh, God, it's probably about 12, 13 years ago. It was one of these missing person things that turned into an MVA. So there was a girl... Um, who lived in the Bronx and she ended up uh, getting hit by a car in Nassau County. And it was one of these deals like, how did you get out to Nassau County? Like, what were you doing? Right. And there was some, some uh, mystery behind it. Well, it turns out she was hanging out with a quote unquote friend who uh, was some record producer, whatever they were hanging out at a hotel, just hanging out. And uh, for whatever reason, she uh, had to go across the street to the 7-Eleven to buy something because they were just hanging out and uh, (laughs) proceeded to get hit by a car, uh, which was terrible, you know, and and she was injured significantly. But, uh, you know, having those conversations of, hey, you got to be honest with me and tell me exactly what you were doing out there. Because to me, this sounds like there were some transactions taking place while you were just hanging out. And uh, it it turns out that's, that's what was going on. And uh, yeah, just by uh, sheer dumb luck, uh, you know, while just hanging out, had to go across the street and got hit by a car. So yeah, that was a a very interesting uh, case from a while ago. You you have to dig deeper into um, the story because, you know, they're not, people aren't just going to come out and tell you a hundred percent of their story. Right. I had a, um, a case, uh, Actually, in the missing person squad, when they used to give us, it wasn't a direct case, but we would have to assist. And this is when I started doing quasi-PI work as I was a sergeant in NYPD. It may sound strange, but I was doing PI work because I was sometimes working with PIs because they were calling and they were asking for our assistance. Or I was getting cases that weren't cases, but yet I was told to work on them. So it wasn't a case number and it wasn't like, you know, I had everybody breathing down my neck, but the work needed to be done. Right. And, you know, I get this, I was getting these letters and these phone calls and the name sounded familiar. And I said, why does the name sound familiar? And I Googled it. And this was going back some years now. I remember the years. And it was Casey Anthony. And if anyone remembers the Casey Anthony case, it, it, it became a big case. There was a missing kid. And this is when the kid I believed was missing. I don't remember exactly because I didn't have much dealing with it. Yeah. But I was getting notified by this person. And uh, he had this whole story about how there were these individuals in New York and they left in the 70s and 80s, and they were, they left under suspicious circumstances. I think maybe they were accused of something, and now they're in Florida, so they need to be looked at for this. So I told my supervisor, I said, these people aren't being honest with us. And, um, you know, their intent was, was to try to get us to, I don't know what their intent was, just to do something else that should have been done. So I contacted mm-hmm. the investigators in Florida, and I said, I'm not touching this. This is not what I do. Um, but you need to know that these people are reaching out to me to look at these people. Um, I don't know what would have happened with it. I'm sure there was, you know, they never looked into it, but that was just an example of, you know, I wouldn't be told the truth. And if they're not going to tell you the truth, the people making the case, then you're going to have a hard time investigating it. That does yeah. happen sometimes. Oh, it but happens more, work. more than you would like it to, you know, it, it really does. The people, they, they try and, I guess, plant seeds and steer things in certain directions. And if you can stick to a good methodology and have a good, you know, Hey, I gotta, you know, do it this particular way. You're going to bust those theories every single time. Uh, it just, uh, it doesn't stand up, but yeah, I think it happens a lot actually. Yeah. I see. I saw it quite often in the NYPD and um, I haven't seen a guest in the private investigator field, but 
I have um, helped others in the private investigating field out of state. I haven't physically helped a lot of cases because I'm licensed in New York State, but um, I had an individual in Texas, and um, he had an interesting case when an um, um, elderly man, 80 years old, just left for his truck and they never came home. No sign, no nothing. So he was stumped on it. He reached out to me through social media, and he, he said, John, what do you think? So I went through the whole case on the phone, and this is all ad hoc. I mean, I have a talent to miss in person cases. I, I have no problem helping people if they feel you know they needed help. And he, he was honest. And you know, this private investigation honest. It was um I don't know if he how many miss in person cases he did, but right. I doubt he did, you know, the seven thousand a year like I did. So he um we me and him were both correct and uh because I told him I had a case once in, in the NYPD, you know, similar when an elderly man left and uh we tracked where he was going. I, I believe here he was going from Manhattan to Ro- Rochester, New Rochelle, one of those. And um, his car went off the road, and they found him on the side of the road. So it was an accident, and that is common, um, unlike the suicides where people won't come home due to an accident. Right. So this individual in Texas, it was I told him, I said, you know, there are people who you know could check lakes and rivers. You know, this is Texas, so they don't have a beach and stuff like that. I says, um, you know you have to track where he was driving. And sure enough, there was a small department in Texas. He called me up and he said, John, he goes, you know, you were correct. And like I said, these investigators also felt this was the same thing. They found the man's car off the side of the road in a lake. Wow. So accidents do happen and people report them missing, but unfortunately it's just a tragic accident. And uh, that does happen now uh, with elderly people yeah. more often. Yeah. And you know, you're able to give closure to the family, right? by being able to to at least let them know what happened, right? You know, just approaching yeah. things differently. That's that's really cool. Very, uh, very well, cool, cool way of looking at things. Well, like you said, closer to the family. Uh, that's correct because, um, you know, these families, um, they they want an answer. And um, I, I, I'm honest with them. You know, I'm, you know, it's not like television. We don't solve things before the hour show ends, but it does <laughs> right. happen. It, it, believe me, it yeah. does happen. I mean, yeah. there's, there's times when we catch this guy right away. We're like, wow, we found him. Right. But I would tell the family, um, you know, I'm going to do my best here. I'm going to, I'm going to help you out. I'm going to look into this. I can't do things unethical. I can't do things illegal. You know, there are people who watch way too much television. Like I watched a lot of TV growing up, but I realized there was like certain Magnum PI stuff that just wasn't possible. I couldn't do that. Yeah. So yeah. there was things that, uh, but when you give a family closure, it's a good feeling. It truly really is. I, I had an individual once when um, he traveled from New Orleans to New York, and he just didn't come home. He was living here in New York, and his friends were like, you know, his friends in New York were like, listen, he's gone. We don't know where he is. It really wasn't an NYPD case, but he did have cancer at one point, so they said he's sick. And, I mean, so we, we took it, and um, I asked him, what's his vice? And they said, what do you mean his vice? I said, the man's vice. I said, Ever, you know, not everybody, but let's face it. The man ran away. What's his vice? Is it gambling? Is it prostitution? Is it drugs? They said no. And they said, well, he used to be an alcoholic. So I said, okay. So I got the honesty. I asked him direct questions. So I was halfway there with that right there. Right. And then once they said he was an alcoholic, um, I remembered they, they knew he was using his ATM. So me and a detective one day um, just went out to where the ATM was and, uh, I started a liquor store. So I walked into the liquor store with his photo. And this is where I think some people are getting it wrong now is people think that all these missing person cases could be done behind a computer. You really can't. You have to get out there and you have to 
ride the subways. You have to go to the parks. You have to go to the liquor stores. Right. So I went to the liquor store. I showed him the picture, and the guy looks. He, he jumped back. He goes, the guy was just in here buying a bottle. So I said, all right. So now we know it's him. I said, are you sure this is him? They said he bought a bottle. They said he walked out and made a left. So I walked out and made a left, and there was um, an old-school cheap hotel in Brooklyn. Uh, who knows if they keep it still there. And sure enough, I saw the hotel, and I saw there were six apartments, and I told the detectives, these are one of these. So I showed it like in the movies. I showed it the picture to the guy at the desk, and the guy at the desk was half asleep with an old TV behind him. Mm. And he said, yeah, that guy's upstairs. So I went upstairs and knocked on the door, and sure enough, he answered. And he's like, how'd you find me? I said, well, your friends care enough to report you missing. Right. And, um, you know, it was sad. It was, he was an elderly man. He did not want to come home, but, you know, thinking outside the box, finding out what his vice was. Sure. Found him. And once you get back to closure for the family, it wasn't his family that reported missing. It was actually his friends. And I called the friends up. I said, listen, I'm not going to force him to come home. If he wants to drink in a hotel in a crappy area of Brooklyn, that he could do that. Sure. But I gave him the apartment number. I gave him the room, obviously the room apartment number. I told him where it is. I said, this is where he is. I told him his friends were looking, and I even gave him his own missing person's flyer. So he had his own picture. There you go, right? Himself. Proof. <laughs> so I'm figuring I'm figuring he's going to use it as a coaster when I'm gone. Right, there you go, right? <laughs> so, and sure enough, it was back to closure around Christmas time that year. I got a letter sent to me in the NYPD, and I was, you know, we don't really get letters sent to us. And when you do, you're a little skeptical. Yeah, right. Is there a subpoena in there or something, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a subpoena or somebody you don't want to talk to. Maybe so. some anthrax. <laughs> you know, like, you got to be careful. Yeah, I mean, you know, cops were so suspicious of that stuff. So right. I opened it, and it was a Christmas card from that gentleman. And he, you know, he said, basically, you saved my life. He goes, I was wow. drinking my life away. That's awesome. And uh, he said, you know, he said, you, you, you did the work, and you found me, and thank you for it. He said, if you've ever reached out to someone and helped them, I was the person. I was like, wow, that was, that was great. And I never spoke to these gentlemen again, but yeah. it was a good feeling to give the, the friends closure because good friends like that to go through all that to report their friend missing and actually go and show up at this hotel to find them was uh, that's the type of closure that um, many police officers do like. It doesn't come often, comes rarely, but when it does, it's it's important to at least in missing person to really reconnect people at that point. Yeah. I got to say, like I, I have a, a huge amount of respect for investigators that, that do this. And I, I find the folks that do really have a strong passion for it. Like for me, just dealing with the whole like family issue, uh, knowing in the back of your mind, that's probably not going to turn out the way they hope it's going to turn out. Like that's, you got to be a certain type of person to be able to, to walk somebody through that. Um, and it's just, you know, you're, you're starting in a, uh, it's an uphill battle. You know, it's almost like you're behind the eight ball. Time is obviously of the essence on these cases, and uh, it's just such a mountain to uh, to overcome. But uh, you know, it's 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 real inspiring, actually. Um, you know how you approach this and how you do it and how you, how you have a real passion for it. I'm sure you probably saw like during your time on the force, like people that needed help, but the NYPD wouldn't help or couldn't help. Right? It didn't meet that certain criteria or standard for you guys to do what you needed to do, but you knew that, you know, somebody needs to help these guys, right? I, I got to think you probably had that feeling, right? Yes, that does happen. Um, that that's There's a lot of gray areas. And um, with private eye work, um, you know, I'm sure with any type of private eye case, there's gray areas. Not everything is cut out as, this person left on this time and they're not home and they're supposed to be home. Right. There's a gray area on why they left and, and where they left from. Sometimes you're not even sure where they left from. And that's, right. that's a big thing. Did they leave from the house? Did they leave from... I mean, if someone goes to a club late at night and they are hailing a cab and they're never seen again, 
they didn't get lost from the house. They get lost outside the club. And we had cases like that where they met the wrong person and right. foul play. Yep. And it was a homicide, and but it was originally a missing person. But when you start to find out that they got a ride from the wrong person, so that's a good example of they're not missing from home, but they were missing from somewhere else. And that's a question you need to ask because they're out of their element. They're somewhere else at that point. And why are they hailing a cab intoxicated late at night on this busy avenue? Yeah, I, I remember uh, there was a, a student at John Jay College. God, it must be maybe about 10 years ago had something like that happen to her. And it was just like, as the, as they figured out exactly what happened, it was horrifying, <laughs> you know, really horrifying. Just, you know, out drinking with friends, wrong place, wrong time. Somebody, you know, a predator saw the opportunity and, and uh, pretty much executed her. You know, it was really, uh, really crazy. Um, and it's, uh, it, it's a crazy line of work, but definitely something that, um, you know, if you're doing it, like I said, you, you definitely have a, a passion for it. So tell me, I mean, we, we talked a little bit about social media. We talked a little a bit about some of the other tools I and mean, you've been doing this for a while. And what are some of the other things that you've seen change in this type of work? And or maybe tell me some of the things you think that are coming down the pipe here that may make your job even easier. Well, it, it always seems like it goes back to social media. And, um, when I was, um, first began investigations. I mean, I remember taking, you know, we would take pictures when I was internal affairs bureau and a prisoner had a broken hand. We would take pictures with Polaroid camera and we would record his statements with a cassette. And this wasn't, you know, this wasn't that long ago, but that's what was going on. But what I will say is we still got the job done. So with social media, especially with Facebook, I mean, um, like I said earlier, you know, you could finally find all the friends of this person and their posts and, you know, there's pictures of them at a New Year's Eve party. So, okay, we, we have a timeline. They're at a New Year's Eve party. Who's the five people in this picture with them? Okay, that's this friend, this friend, and this friend. So you can tell the friends, listen, you're already with them at the New Year's Eve party. Where were they the next morning? So I saw social media evolve and um, uh, I embraced it a little bit reluctantly at first, but I, but I embraced it and um, I had a... Um, a supervisor tell me once on the phone, he goes, cause I was a supervisor and he was talking about detectives and he goes, you know, these guys want to search social media, but no one wants to knock on the door anymore. So, and I was always a little different. I was always the guy, listen, they're swiping their Metro card. We got to go to the subway, you know, they're hanging out by the school. Then we got to go to the school and talk to the school security. So social media is huge. It's a huge tool and it probably will close a lot of your cases. But, and this is where, private investigators need to understand when it comes to a missing person case, it is very hard to do that entire case with social media. You right. have to, especially, especially the cold cases with older cases because the social medias are, are deleted. The people have moved on. They may not be friends with that person anymore on social media if they ever were a friend to begin with. So when it comes to missing person cases, you have to, um, you'd be amazed at how many times that people have found, you know, if someone wants to be homeless and not with his family, he chooses to live, or she chooses to live in Lower Manhattan, you have to go to soup kitchen. Right. And, you know, people aren't going to be taking videos at the soup kitchen and putting it on social media. Hey, no. we're all hanging out. No, they're not, they're not checking into the soup kitchen <laughs> and taking photos of their food. That's not happening there. No. And yeah. if their friend has a mental issue and laying with, <laughs> yeah. Put that. yeah, but laying with the blanket over them on the side of the road, you know, that's not going to make it to social media. So you have yeah. to get out there and you have to talk to homeless people and show them the picture. Yeah. So I see 
investigative work is becoming more social media platform, but um, the seasoned investigators who I believe saw it before the social media started, we're so used to being boots on the ground and out there doing the old school work. I feel that that is a huge plus for any investigation because anyone who you know has a case or anyone who hires someone to do a case, that person needs to get out there. And if they could find them on social media the first day, case closed, that's one thing. But I, I find it that um, social media can only go so far. Yeah. So that's why a big part of my work is actually getting out there and doing the interviews and speaking to the right people and uh, doing the surveillance and looking for them where you believe they are. Yeah, and I think you can source information other places too. So like going to uh, OSINT and maybe finding newspaper articles about a missing person or whatever. Sometimes you can find nuggets in there of people that, that interject and respond to the stories. You know, like you could, you have the potential you could find an eyewitness. You're like, oh yeah, like, wow, this is so crazy about this uh, person that disappeared from that club. I go to that club all the time. Like I was there that night, you know, like they'll interject and they'll put something like that in there and you're like, oh. Bingo. Okay. This is somebody I definitely want to talk to um, where, you know, you never would have found that if it wasn't something that was prevalent on the internet now. So I, I think you bring up some good points, John, that you really have to mix the two. Right. And I think the successful person knows how to navigate both of those worlds and really capitalize. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there is a, a good deal of in-person work that needs to get done on these types of cases. You know, the face to face is really, really important. And, uh, you know, these days you just got to include a mask, you know, so uh, one of the other challenges of getting this type of work done in this environment. Um, so we're going to wind down over here. But we before we do, you, you have a hobby, too, that I want to talk to people about. So tell me a little bit about this, uh, this other thing that you do. Yeah, interestingly enough, while I was in the NYPD, you know, I, I always thought outside the box, and uh, I, I used to take notes and I used to write down things, and um, I didn't always tell my coworkers I was doing this, but uh, I have a lot of cop short stories, a lot of cops short stories, and um, I, I, I compiled a bunch of them, and it's a lot of humor. It's um, yeah, I read so many cop stories where they catch the bad guy and they chase him to the street and they knock him over a garbage pail. And, and yeah. those stories are great, but they've been told so many times. So. I throw a little humor into my stories and um, I have a bunch of uh, stories I compile and I guess I had a good memory and um, they were um, a lot of the stories were patrol and obviously missing person cases. And I, I write them down and uh, I show them to friends and family and they, they, they get it. They read the stories. They're interested in them. Great. We got to get you on John Hoda's podcast. John does a whole uh, podcast on interviewing like uh, true crime writers and things like that. So uh, keep at it. And <laughs> I'm sure he'll be contacting you at some point and they'll, they'll want to chat with you. Um, John, how do folks get a hold of you if they wanted to talk to you about, um, you know, missing person case that they were struggling with and uh, maybe wanted to bounce some ideas off you? Sure. Uh, I'm glad you said struggling because, uh, like I said earlier, um, if someone's struggling with a missing person case, like um, if they've never done a missing person case, listen, we all have to start somewhere. I, I get it. I started a missing person, too. Um, or if they are at a brick wall um, and they need some angle to look at, uh, they could contact me. And, if you know, obviously, if they're out of state or out of the country, I can't physically help them with it. If they're in New York, you know, I could physically help them with it. But if a state, I, I'll spend my time and I'll really give them some advice on what they should do or need to do or need to look at. Sure. So if anyone needs me, uh, any of my services, um, my name and my company is Ferris Investigations, and they can reach me at um, ferris.protection at gmail.com. Yeah, we're going to put that in the show notes too. So They can also reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm on social media. Perfect, perfect. Well, John, this was really great. 
And okay. uh, I appreciate you taking the time to, to come on and talk about this subject. I think uh, it's it's one of the, the uh, niches in, in our industry that not everybody does, um, but the folks that do do it are very passionate about it. And uh, I'm sure you've got a wealth of information available for folks out there. And uh, I just want to say thank you again for coming on and talking about this stuff. And uh, thank you everyone for tuning in and uh, we'll catch you guys on the next show. Well, this was a very interesting show, and thanks to John for coming on, and we give him a lot of credit for the investigative work he does. Thank you, John, for your service. You don't get more New York than this guy. Well, unless you're talking to this guy. We also want to thank Amos, Crosstracks, IRB, and USABugsweeps.com for sponsoring the show. Have you checked out investigatorstoolbox.com yet? Remember, it only takes 41 cents a day to unlock the future of investigations. Make an investment in your business and yourself today. 25% legacy discount won't last long, so use code PIP201836 to save even more. If you got a question or comment about the show, email Matt at MatthewS at SatellitePI.com. You can also find him on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. We want your feedback so we can bring you the best shows possible. We'll be back next Monday with a new show. Make sure you tune in. Stay safe out there, everyone.